One of the ways that we trust in our God is by constantly looking for His instruction to us. We do that by opening up the Word, uh, by bowing our hearts and our minds in submission to our good King and trusting the things that He has to tell us. So if you've got your scripture and you'd like to open up to 1 Corinthians 16, we are close to finishing this uh, wonderful letter that has been such a benefit to us over the last uh, several months. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and our gentlemen will bring one to you. Uh, they've also got pencils and note sheets. Uh, we hope that'll be an assistance to you as we study through this together. A couple of announcements while we're getting settled and opening up our Bibles together. I, I do want to uh, encourage you with the good news that the bathrooms and the kitchen are complete. The marathon of construction has come to an end. And so uh, if, if you've been holding it this whole time, it's ready for you. It's ready for you. We're grateful for Augustine and his, uh, <clears throat> his crew have done a really good job and for everybody who's contributed to this, uh, Anna Abedas was uh, very helpful in setting the design course for it. And Sean gave some great insight and wisdom. Pastor Paul's done some tremendous work in the logistics of it all and being available for these crews to open up and close things up. And just everybody who pitched in, uh, we're really grateful for their contributions. And so uh, we're happy to enjoy that now. And uh, in short order, we'll be starting a minor construction project in the upper stairs room where we're going to fix the bathroom in our classrooms and get some new carpeting up there and some lighting so it doesn't feel like you're in the catacombs worshiping in secret up there. Uh, so that should be happening pretty soon. We also uh, just wanted to say thank you and let you know that Iglesia Emmanuel, which is the Spanish congregation that shares this building with us, they meet in the afternoons. They sent some teams out in the last week, and if you haven't noticed, take a look at the beautiful job they did cleaning out our landscaping in between our, the two sections of our property and cleaning out the weeds from the children's church uh, playground area did a tremendous job there. So we've been blessed to have good partners in Iglesia Emanuel, and um, they've always been so receptive to us and um, accommodating and, and understanding. So we're really great uh, for the gospel being preached in multiple languages in this building. May it continue to do so. <clears throat> so we've got our Bibles, and we are open to 1 Corinthians 16. Last week, uh, we just looked at two verses. They were important verses. Uh, those verses uh, were very characteristic of the way that the Apostle Paul often likes to end his letters to the churches with urgency, with call to action. And so we were given five imperatives last week, and the first four of those commands, those imperatives, were closely related to one another. Um, first of all, we were told by the Apostle Paul, the church in Corinth was told, be watchful. Uh, realize that we're in a spiritual battle. Do not become negligent or allow yourself to grow weary or complacent in your walk after Christ. Be watchful. Secondly, stand firm in the faith. This faith that has been delivered to us is a faith that should not be altered or changed. It's a faith that doesn't grow old or become obsolete. So we are to have a resolve to remain committed to the confession of faith that we made in Christ at our baptism. And we're not to abandon this gospel that, it was, that was preached to us so powerfully. So be watchful and stand firm in the faith. And then act like men. There's a call here to, to be strong and courageous. Um, this highlights the noble aspect of godly manhood, namely courage in the face of opposition, courage in the face of fear, and a refusal to run away from the truth that God has given to us. And then fourthly, we are to be strong, specifically to apply our energy, our strength, to the worship of God and the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So those first four commands that were given uh, were very linked and, and similar in nature. And then a fifth command is added to it, which seems to stand apart from the others in a sense. It was different from the first four, and it seemed more tailored to the Corinthian believers, actually, 
who would be receiving and reading the letter. The direction given here seems to have been an umbrella command of sorts, one that should speak to everything that the Corinthians were to preoccupy themselves with and describing specifically the manner in which they were to do those things. He said, let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. Love is fundamental to the Christian faith. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son in John 3.16. We are to speak the truth in love according to Ephesians 4. We are to have faith and hope and love abounding in our lives. And, and the greatest of these, according to chapter 13, is love. It is the love of Christ which compels us or controls us, depending on your translation, 2 Corinthians 5.14. And in the grand description of love that we read a few chapters ago in chapter 13 of this letter, that love is a very active thing. It is so much more than just a sentiment or a feeling or an impression. Love impacts the way that we treat one another. It impacts our action. It is, it is verbal. It is it is practical. It is real. And so it is fitting that Paul, having commanded the brothers and sisters in Corinth to let all that they do be done in love, it is fitting that he give them some practical direction on how they might apply that right away. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he's going to do that. We'll be reading verses 15 through 18 and then studying those together. So let me read that out loud for us before we begin. Now I urge you, brothers... You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. Let's bow our head and ask that the Lord would guide and direct our learning this morning together. Father, we are grateful for your truth. And there are many obstacles to fallen minds like ours, seeing the truth for what it is and hearing it the way you intend us to hear it. And so I pray, God, and trust that you'll remove those obstacles for us today, Lord. Whatever biases we bring into this passage, whatever preconceived notions we might have, if they do not match what you present to us, let us Bow the heart to you today, God. Let us conform to your will and let us adjust our view of the world that we live in so that we might conform to the pattern of thinking that you have presented to us as your disciples. We are grateful, Lord God, for the leaders you put into our lives, for those who work diligently at the, the gospel and its spread, for those who are willing to put their own needs to the side for the benefit of others. Let us be grateful for them and let that all be done in the pattern of the greatest servant of all, your son, Jesus Christ, who though he was a king came and offered himself as a living sacrifice for us and, and, and even a sacrifice of death on the cross. And so we praise you that he is alive today, having resurrected and defeated death. And so let that sacrifice be in view as we think about how we might serve one another and how we might love those who serve us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three figures in view in this passage, three characters, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. Of the three we know almost nothing of Fortunatus and Achaicus. They're just not mentioned anywhere else in the scripture. So we don't have a lot of reference to expand our point of view of who these men were. There is a little bit more information about Stephanus and we will digest that in just a few moments. But to begin with, let us just take note of what these three men seem to have in common with one another. Three characteristics are noted by Paul that these three men share. 
Uh, one is their belief in Jesus Christ. Uh, these are not just random people. These are brothers in the faith. These are individuals who, having recognized the deficit of sin, which keeps them from God, having realized their absolute ability to overcome that deficit of sin, to bridge the gap between them and a perfect God who is pure in all ways, these men have heard the gospel. They have heard God's plan of salvation only through Christ. And by the grace of God, they have received it. They have said, yes, I am a sinner. I confess my sin to God. I repent of that sin. And I know that that can only be overcome through God's holy work. So these are believing men. Stephanus and his household are described specifically as having been converted to the Christian faith by the Holy Spirit. And we have to assume that Stephan, or that Fortunatus and Achaius, having become a part of the mission, followed shortly after that. Secondly, not only are they believers in Jesus, we see their devotion. We see their devotion to Christ, and we see the manifestation of that devotion to Christ in their service to the saints. It's quite obvious that these three men are not idle, but are actively demonstrating a commitment to the spread of the gospel. And are almost certainly the three men selected by Corinth to come and find Paul and deliver into his very hand the letter that Paul has been responding to throughout 1 Corinthians, the letter that we're reading. There's a letter that we do not have that came to him that had a number of issues that he has systematically addressed throughout this wonderful epistle that we have been studying. And so these men are the deliverers of that letter. We can, we can be very confident in that. Thirdly, we see that they have in common their work and their labor, which has become such a blessing to God's people particularly to Paul himself. He speaks about how encouraged he is to receive these men and, and to see their willingness to serve. This work, this labor, it is described at one point as diakonion, which is a similar word to deacon. Uh, it's where we get the word deacon. It literally just means the service or work that is rendered that requires great effort, that requires sacrifice. And so it's not specifically saying that these men were deacon. It possibly alludes to the, the, the idea that they might have been deacons. But nevertheless, whatever their title is, these men are serving, and they are serving with enthusiasm. They are devoted to the work of the church. So all three of these men seem to embody these characteristics, but we do have a little more information about the first man mentioned, Stephanus, and about the household that he was in charge of. Native to the text we're studying this morning, we see that he and his household were among the earliest converts in the region of Achaia. Corinth is a city inside of that region. So one of the very first families to say, yes, I need Christ. And this is actually not the first time we've heard his name mentioned in 1 Corinthians. If you rewind to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, Paul said in verse 16, he said, I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. And at that point, he's speaking about how he was one of the first people to bring the gospel to Corinth. And it would seem that in the earliest days of the church that Paul started there, he did the initial baptizing. Once the church began to grow, Paul apparently instructed others to begin to take on that responsibility. This account would seem to confirm the family of Stephanus were among the various, very earliest believers in the city of Corinth. And there's something to be learned from the way that the people in this household responded to being saved by grace. They received the grace of God by faith. It was a free gift. They did not have to earn it. But reception of forgiveness and its accompanying spiritual gifts and the blessings that, that come with it marked a change in these people. 
they immediately began to respond with the heart of a servant. Christ saved them. And then the outflow of that salvation is a response of service. I was teaching uh, through Mark chapter 1 this week in my small group in my home. We're, we're beginning in the Gospel of Mark this semester. And one of the stories that came to mind as I was preparing to preach this morning is found in Mark 1 verse 31 where the apostles, rather I'm sorry, the disciples that Jesus had called uh, go to the house of Peter. And in the house is Peter's mother-in-law. Peter was a married man and so the mother of his wife was there, but she's ill. She's fallen sick with a fever. And so... Jesus responds to this. They bring Jesus to her. And it says in verse 31, He came and He took her by the hand and He lifted her up and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. Her first response, she is suffering from this fever. She's feeling terrible. Christ comes and removes this sickness from her, saves her in, in a, a lesser way, in, a, in just a physical, temporary way, saves her from her, her fever. And her response is, I'm going to get to work. I'm going to serve these people. I, I want to show my gratitude. Uh, I think this pattern sees support in a doctrine uh, that perhaps we don't often expect to find it in. I think the doctrine of election speaks to this natural progression of Christ coming in and saving us and then us responding to that salvation through a heart that desires to serve, to serve our Savior and to serve the others that He has saved. The doctrine of election, which we're going to look at this morning, so go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, I believe shows us this progression. This progression. While the doctrine of election is mentioned again and again throughout the New Testament scriptures, there's a very useful uh, display of it here in the first two chapters of the Ephesian letter. So starting with uh, Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to read a few verses for us, just verses 3 through 6. And then we will look again later in chapter 2. So verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved." Paul exhorts us to bless God in this passage. Verse 3 says that we are to bless God. Blessed be the name of God. Why? Because of the way that God has blessed us. Because we are the recipients of such great generosity from the hand of this amazing creator. How exactly has God blessed his people? Verse 3, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is a gift of incredible magnitude to think of the fact that those who are Christians have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How could Christians who have received this gift not bless Him back? How could we not bless Him with our praise, with our devotion, with our worship, and with service? Having received such a prize from Him, it should be a natural response to us now to thank Him with obedience. And then in verse 4, this blessing is linked to the fact that God chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. This is not a responsive Choice. This is not God seeing our good deeds and then choosing to respond to pick us into his kingdom because we seem to be the strongest of all these sinners that he has made. That's not how it works. Nothing is said of the virtue of the chosen. 
For they had no virtue until the grace of Jesus washed them clean and, and he credited them with his own purity and righteousness. The text simply describes those who are properly the church of God as his chosen ones. And that really shouldn't surprise us at all if we are familiar with the Old Testament, should it? Was not Israel called with the same language the chosen nation of God? Did he not direct and command his chosen people to be different from the rest of the world, called out from them? Did he not pull them out of bondage when they were slaves in Egypt, some even against their will? Remember how much they grumbled against his salvation of pulling them away from that bondage? He did that to accomplish his own purposes, to, to establish this redemption which would display his grace to the generations. And this was not based on their greatness or merit. It was simply based on his will. So to expand upon this idea of the people of God having been chosen, Paul describes them as having been predestined for adoption into the family of God. And that's, of course, a topic that's very dear to our hearts right now. We get to hear the soft cries of little Trey, who was just brought into this, the Kessner household just this past week. We are grateful for the great love of Christ and the fact that he is allowing us to serve him by taking uh, babies who don't have safe homes and bringing them into our families, whether that's for foster care or for long-term adoption, is in the hands of God. But by grace, he elects many of his creation into his home. He brings us into his, his family by this predestining election. And Paul even goes so far as to tell us the very motive behind this predestination, the, the, this distinguishing selection that God has made. He chose us not based on our merit, not based on what we have to offer to heaven, not based on a faithful decision on our part even. He predestined us according to the purpose of his perfect and holy will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us by the way of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. So this is stunning, isn't it? It is stunning because God didn't owe redemption to any of us. Not one human being on this planet deserves the favorable look of God upon them. No one could demand God to give them grace. He was good before we were even invented, before he spoke us into creation. He is absolutely good whether we worship him or not. Do you understand that? As we've come together to worship today, we have added nothing to the glory of God by praising his name. We have simply acknowledged the perfection of God that will always exist. He doesn't need us to be glorified. He is always glorified. And yet, because of his mercy and grace, though we were sinners and rebels to the kingdom of God, he chose to say, I'm going to spare some of you for my glory. I'm going to bring you near to me for your benefit and for my glory. I'm going to have you worship me. And in order for that to happen, he had to wash us. He had to make it possible for us to be near to him. And he had to change our hearts because we didn't want it. We didn't want the glory of God. We wanted autonomy from him. We wanted a God that we could control. We wanted a God we could put under our thumb so that we could do what we wanted to do. So in order to save us, God had to change something in us. We wouldn't have received it otherwise. He chose it just because it pleased him to do so. It fit with his plan. He didn't have to save us, but he did. And this is part of the reason why the doctrine of election should never make the chosen boastful because it has nothing to do with how good we are. God has chosen us, but that doesn't mean we get to strut around earth thinking we're better than anyone else because God has selected us out of the rubble of sin 
and made us something totally different. I can imagine if I was standing in a lineup of athletes to be uh, chosen during spring training to, to make the roster of the Oakland Athletics, right? I am uh, not to the level of a professional athlete. I have no business picking up a wooden bat and swinging at a 100 mile per hour fastball, right? So if the coach of the team were to say, you know what, we've got an extra roster spot this year, they changed the rules, and we have all these professional athletes, but I'm actually gonna choose you, Nick Neves. I'm gonna let you be on the team. Do you think I would strut around the, the clubhouse acting like there was something special about me? I can't swing a bat. I can't throw the ball with accuracy. I don't deserve to be in that clubhouse. It would truly be mercy for that coach to put me on the team, not based on anything that I could do myself. I would have nothing to contribute. Every game I play in would be worse off for the A's if I was on that team. All right? So how can election be the foundation for boasting for the Christian? It cannot, because nothing that we have done has brought us into the kingdom of God. It's all the work of Christ. The only boasting it justifies in us is the boasting in Christ himself, boasting in his perfect work, boasting in his fulfillment of the law, boasting in his love for us, which endures through our wickedness and our brokenness. That is the only boasting that should come from the doctrine of election. But there is something that comes along with that election, that monergistic work of God that I don't want us to miss. So turn to chapter 2 of Ephesians. This is all part of the same train of thought, by the way. Uh, the chapters and the verse distinctions came far later. Um, and so in some ways, they help us, but in some ways they might make us think of this as two different ideas. It's really not. This first section, this first movement of Ephesians works together to express the, the glory of our salvation and the great grace that God has poured out onto us. And so Paul's still marveling at the wonderful redemptive work that God has brought about in the lives of the saints. And he points out here another aspect of this predestination that I think is illustrated beautifully in the lives of Stephanus and his household. And in the lives of these other brothers mentioned here in the Corinthian letter. It says in Ephesians 2, we're going to read verses 4 through 10. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, election is fully the work of God and something that we cannot boast about. And when God elects to make us a part of his family, he has also elected us to take part in accomplishing the good work that he has predestined us to participate in. You were saved to redemption, but you were also saved to serve God. You notice that at the very end in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Christian, you were in no way saved by your good works, but if having been saved, if there is no good work in your life, 
If you are not in any way involved in the ministry of the gospel, if you are not using your spiritual gifts as a blessing to the church, if you are not in any way eager and willing to apply yourself to the well-being of God's people, then you have to ask yourself that tough question, how does verse 10 apply to me? How am I living out these good works that God has predestined me to do? He didn't just save you to keep you from peril. He saved you because he's writing the story of his glory throughout history. And your salvation is a part of that. And as he saves you, he brings you near to him to be loved by him. And then so that he might turn you out and send you out into the world to act Christ-like, to respond to that love in a loving way through acts of service and through good deeds. What confidence can I have that God has actually saved me if I am no different from the person I was before my salvation? Salvation is a transformational work that God does. It is not just legal, although there is a legal component to it. He declares us justified because of the work of Christ. That means we are no longer guilty before God because the full penalty of our sins, all that we committed before and all that we will one day commit have been punished upon Jesus himself. So there's a legal component to it, but that is not the grand total. It is transformational in nature. Having been set free from this debt, we can now live differently. We can live in true fellowship with the God of the universe. And as you live in fellowship with him, he changes you. He <laughs> sanctifies you. Bless you. He brings you to a greater understanding of the truth. He challenges you in ways you never thought he would. He encourages you. And when you fail, he picks you up and dusts you off again. He gives you the comfort of the body of Christ so that when you apply your gifting that he has put into your heart and into your, into your life, when you apply it to others, you can see what a benefit it is to them. See, your salvation is not just about you if you are a Christian. It is about the nature and character of God. It is an, an event that God uses to make his majesty known. And so it is inconceivable that God would save us and then allow us to, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, put our light under a bushel. The fact that God has put light in you, that he has brought truth to bear upon your life, means that now he gets to display his glory in you so that you might be a light to the world, shining the light of Christ. Verse 16 in Matthew 5, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Some have ironically argued that the good works that we're just speaking about in, in reference to predestination is really the only thing that we've been predestined to. That election doesn't have anything to do with your salvation. You choose to save, but then once you're saved, God then predestines you to do good works. But that ignores chapter 2's intimate connection with chapter 1. The good works flow out of the transformational work that God has done in pulling us out of our sin and changing our hearts so that we might love the things of God. May all the glory, honor, and credit for our salvation go to Him alone. Stephanus is a saved man. His household believes on Christ. And as a result of that salvation, they cannot help but apply themselves to the service of their new holy family. They immediately begin to serve and have now done so consistently since the inception of the church in that place, in Corinth. This really should be the pattern of saints everywhere, not just in the Corinthian congregation. We are to show love to one another by serving one another with devotion. So the example of these three men should be one final encouragement 
that Paul uses to urge those Corinthians who are pretty bad at loving one another to stop thinking only about themselves and to start living in a loving way by serving one another instead of battling with one another over everything. Loving one another instead of strutting around with their freedoms, trampling on the faith of the weak with their expression of, of, uh, of, of license. These Corinthians needed to love one another by serving one another with devotion as the three men who came to deliver the letter are good examples of. But there is actually another side to the coin of servant-hearted love described in last verses of 1 Corinthians. We are to show love to one another by serving one another with devotion, but we are also to show love to one another by honoring those who do serve with devotion, by thanking the Lord for the work that God is doing through them. So Paul has the three men specifically mentioned here in mind. They were likely the ones who had carried that letter, and, and they're obviously faithful men, men who could be trusted. They were not just available to serve as a blessing to God's people. They were devoted to this service of God. And so two distinct words are used here to describe the way that we honor those who faithfully serve one another and in doing so faithfully live out the good works that they are predestined to do. First of all, uh, we are told that we're to subject ourselves to them. The word in the Greek is hupotesethe. Hupotesethe means to place oneself under the rank of someone higher than you. We are to subject ourselves to those who serve the gospel and work and labor for the advancement of God's glory. We know that expanding our view beyond just 1 Corinthians to the rest of the New Testament uh, helps us to understand there's a general call to honor everybody. Not just workers, we're to honor all people. So in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, we're told that we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 1 Peter 2.17 says that we're to honor everyone, that we're to love the brotherhood, we're to fear God, and we're to honor the emperor. Romans 12.1 says that we're to love one another with brotherly affection, outdoing one another in showing honor to one another. So there is a general honor that we bestow upon all. But God does describe in more detail here the order that he has built into the societies that man is to form. If you were not with us last Sunday, and I know many of you weren't, we've been working through the Ten Commandments and the Baptist Catechism that helps us to understand them more thoroughly. And I got to preach last Sunday evening on the Fifth Commandment, which is honor your mother and father so that your days may be long in the earth. And uh, if you haven't caught that, go and listen to it on the Podbean, because through that commandment, we see a foundation laid by which all of society understands order and structure. When we learn to honor our mother and our father, we learn that we have needs. We learn that we can't do all things by ourselves. And we learn to have respect for the people that God has put into our lives to help us with those needs that we need help with. And so not only is the commandment number five about honoring your mother and father, but in a sense it also teaches us to honor our boss at work, to honor our teachers who train us up and give us knowledge that we need for life, to honor a general if we are a soldier, to honor our boss at work, to honor... Uh, the order of the household that God has established between a husband and a wife. All these different types of order God uses in a beneficial way to us to keep us from devolving into chaos. So there are many different structures that God has established by which we understand honor and, and uh, authority to give us peace and, and safety instead of uh, chaos and anarchy. 
So our elected officials, for instance, Romans 13.1, the Lord says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so we are to look to our uh, governments that rule over us, not with disdain and with hatred, but we're to pray for these individuals. We are to ask for God's blessing to be on them, that, that God would guide them in wisdom because God has established these institutions to give us direction and safety, to prevent us from being taken over by other warring factions. Uh, these things are here generally for our good. Does that mean they're perfect? No, it does not. And we've spoken about that at length, so I won't go into details on how to respond when they're not. But this general call here is for us to let every person be subject to the governing authorities. We're to be subject to our teachers. 1 Timothy 5.17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So we're to, we're to be grateful for the people that God has put into our lives that help us to advance our understanding of God's word and our, our ideas about theology and how do we properly worship God and know him. And then thirdly, we're to honor our elders. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So God has placed church leadership in our lives to help us to understand things that might be difficult for us to find on our own, to help us to work through issues of church discipline and conflict, to help us to apply our gifts in organized and strategic ways so that the gospel work can be accomplished well. Now, we don't know that Stephanus or Tunis or Achaius, we don't know if they were elders. It doesn't say that they were deacons. Uh, they're not given a title of office in these words. So what we see here is that station is not the only reason to show honor to a person. You don't honor a person just because they've been put in a position of authority. Paul is urging us here at the end of the 16th chapter to be subject to those whose faith is on display simply by the use of their gifts, simply by the, the devoted service that they render to the church, whether or not they are a deacon or an elder or any other number of titles that they might receive. I love what uh, the Scottish commentator William Barclay had to say about this. Uh, Barclay passed away the year that I was born, 1978, uh, but he has contributed much to uh, the, the, uh, the literature of... of um, of commentaries in, in the scripture. He was a, a, semi, a pro, he was a pastor for a while and then a semi, seminary professor for uh, decades. He says, in the early church, willing and spontaneous service was the beginning of official office. A man became a leader of the church not so much by man-made appointment as because his life and work marked him out as one whom all men must respect. All those who share the work and the toil of the gospel command respect, not because they have been appointed by a man to an office, but because they are doing the work of Christ. So if, if you've not been recognized and given a position, don't worry about that. What matters is that you are serving the Lord. God's position is the one that matters. And when you do the things that God has called you to do as a Christian, you're exalting the Christ that you represent. While the title of elder or deacon are important to the order and the function of the New Covenant Church, one does not have to hold one of these offices to serve the Lord well. When God is using the saints to the benefit of the body, be subject to them. Do not fight with them. Don't feel compelled to argue against everything that they do. Do not envy their position. 
and wish that God had given you an honor that they had been given or a gifting that they had been given. Do not resent their efforts to point you to the truth of the word, especially if they're correcting you or helping you to understand a way by which you need to grow. Learn to be thankful for that gift that God has put into your life. Learn to understand that if they're ministering with the right motives, then God is doing good work through that admonition and correction. In so much as they are serving you in biblical ways, you are actually submitting to God by submitting to their leadership and by conforming to their example. Much like what Paul said back in chapter 11 when he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Secondly, Paul tells us that in addition to being subject to these hardworking saints, we're to also give recognition to such as these. That's a slightly different thing. When you subject yourself to them, you're practically allowing them to lead you. But giving recognition to them speaks about your appreciation for the things that they do for you and the way that God uses them to minister to your heart. So if you turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, or I've got this up on the screen too, if you'd rather just read it up there. The Apostle Paul writes to a different congregation and says, For God has not destined us for wrath. Again, that idea that good works are something that God ordains for us before time. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. To give those who work for the gospel recognition goes beyond just being able to recognize who's working for the saints. It it means thanking the Lord for the good work that they are doing that is a blessing to God's people. And there are errors possible on both sides of this command. So I want to make sure we be careful of the ditch on the left and the ditch on the right. We want to be biblical in the way that we respect those who are put in positions of of leadership over us. But we can can make several errors. Let Let me just point out the two major ones. First of all, we can fail to recognize and honor those who are laboring for the gospel. That is an error in and of itself. Taking for granted or overworking those who are so eager to labor for the body is not a godly thing to do. There can be a lack of understanding among people when it comes to the rigors of sincere ministry. When you say, God, here I am, use me for the work that you would call me to do, and you submit yourself to teaching Sunday school, that's hard work sometimes, right? When you have to deal with somebody else's little kids, when you have to gently admonish them and try to keep them on track, and yet they're bouncing off the walls and they're bouncing off of one another, and the crazy leadership at church gives you sugary snacks for those children, it can be hard to be a Sunday school teacher, right? So we need to be thinking about how difficult it is for people to serve in that capacity, and we need to be grateful for the fact that they're willing to do that. We need to be thinking about the fact that it's difficult when everybody else is done with an event and and people are getting in their cars and driving home to rest, that there are some who stay behind, and they do the difficult work of stacking chairs up, They do the difficult work of washing those greasy dishes in the kitchen, of of making the the building presentable and pretty again so that we can worship the Lord God the next Sunday. They they do that extra work while others are are resting, and they do it with a glad heart, thankful to be used of God. But let us make an effort to consider the cost of of serving our king and to be grateful for the fact that, that many are willing to do those things. A flippant expectation that Christians should not need any recognition 
is a detriment to the body of Christ. And that's tricky because in a sense, we really shouldn't need recognition from one another. Luke 17, verses 7 through 10, is a passage I often meditate on as a pastor. It says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? The answer to that question is no, you're not going to do that. They're a servant and they're supposed to do what servants do. He says in verse 8, Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and you will drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So Luke 17 is a check and balance on pride. It should keep us from, everyone's laughing in the front row, so I hope that I didn't say anything embarrassing here. Uh, we, should, we should not be focused on getting honor for the things that we do. Jesus is saying we should simply see ourselves as servants that have been blessed beyond what we deserve. We have, we have been blessed with the grace of Jesus Christ. And so we should be thankful that we could even be in the service of Jesus. But it doesn't say that we get to act like the master and treat everybody else in the church as if they owe us service, as if they owe their service to us in some kind of way, like we're their master and they should just serve us and do the job that God has called them to do. That, that wouldn't be very familial. That would not be very loving to the people that we serve alongside. Rather, it says that we are to say to ourselves, we are unworthy servants. We should think of ourselves as being overly blessed by the grace of God to be allowed to serve. Um, the parable teaches us that we ought to have a humble heart in and of ourselves, but it doesn't teach us to treat others as slaves of God. Paul had experienced this category of error himself in his own ministries. The Galatians, though he had labored there to try to establish sound doctrine and faithful theology among the people, they began to give ear to Judaizers, people who came in and presented a different gospel, a gospel that didn't correspond with, with what Paul had preached there. They quickly pushed him to the side and began to follow other leaders. And that was a disrespect to Paul and the work that he had done there. And more importantly, it was a disrespect for, to Christ because it wasn't the true gospel anymore. The Corinthians, in their pride, preferred other teachers, such as Peter or Apollos, over Paul, and so they began to treat Peter with, a, uh, with began to treat Paul with a, a kind of scorn, a, a kind of, of disrespect, and so he's experienced this kind of lack of appreciation for leadership. But remember in 1 Corinthians four three that Paul said, "But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself." So he wants us to understand that it is. It's not a nothing thing. It's a very small thing that he should be judged by the people around him. Uh, but it is something. There is something there where, where we should give honor and, and recognition to those who are, are praising the Lord and are doing so with their action. Receiving the honor of our peers should be a very small thing to us, but giving honor to one another should be seen as a command and an important feature that keeps the body of Christ working at peace and in good harmony. So to think very little of the men and women who God uses to support and care for the church and her mission, that's a grave mistake, and it builds pride in us. It, it, it keeps us from really appreciating one another as various diverse body, uh, parts of the body of Christ. Ultimately, that becomes a dishonor to God who prompted these faithful ones to offer that support to the church in the first place. So the first error, the first ditch that we don't want to fall into is by not giving any sort of respect or thankfulness 
to the people who are working hard in the church. But the second error on the other side of, of the path is to give them more exaltation than we really ever should. Not too long ago, we made acquaintance with a young lady who had been out of church for a while. We were urging her to get involved with church again. She had grown up in Pentecostal churches. And she was going to church with her family at one point in time, and they revered their pastor. They believed him to be a mighty man of God to the point that one day that pastor got up in the pulpit and he basically told his congregation that God had revealed to him that that church was supposed to move out of state. They were supposed to all together sell their possessions, change jobs, and go to Arizona. And so a good portion of that congregation, because of their respect for this man, said, well, if God is telling him, then he must be telling us the truth. They sold their homes. They quit their jobs. They uprooted from their families. They moved across state lines, and they established a church in Arizona where they served the Lord for several months until that pastor decided he had a change of heart and abandoned the congregation. So you can imagine the damage that that did to those people who had come up underneath that man's leadership. Now there's two faults here. We all gasp at the gross, egregious sin of that pastor not caring for his flock properly, for the gross, egregious sin of that man speaking for the Lord when he should not have spoken for the Lord and simply let the word speak for itself. But there was also error in the hearts of those church members who exalted that man to such a degree that they put his word on the same level as the scripture. When it says here that we are to honor those who labor among us, it does not mean that we are to exalt them to a degree we start to think of them like Christ. Or we start to think of them as being completely exempt from sin or from error. We need to exalt people in the proper way that Scripture has taught us to do so. So we thank God for them. We encourage them with our words. When the, when the work is heavy and hard, we pitch in and we help out with that work. We don't just expect them to do it all themselves. But we do not make idols out of these leaders. We do not covet the gifts that God has given to them. We do not create celebrity within the church where we, we think so specially of certain gifted men or women that to be in their presence is almost an honor for us. No, we are grateful and in awe and wonder at what God has done to make them useful to the body of Christ. But our affections are always channeled through them to the Lord himself because it is God who makes us capable of loving and serving and doing anything of value to the church. So be careful. We see examples of this in Scripture too. In Acts 16, 16, there's a young lady who hears the apostles preaching and she goes through the streets just proclaiming that these surely are men of the Lord, that they are preaching the gospel of truth. And after a little while of her just constantly proclaiming this, the Scripture says that the apostle Paul gets annoyed at her and he confronts her and casts a demon out of her because he didn't want to be thought of as a celebrity. He didn't want these men of the Lord being the focus of the mission. He knew that this was a distraction to get people to think about their work in the wrong ways and to put Paul and the others on a pedestal. And so he cast this demon out and the woman turns and walks away. She didn't truly believe the message was of God. She was being manipulated by spiritual forces to try to sabotage the mission of, of Paul and Barnabas. Later in, in Acts, uh, earlier in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas were confused with gods. Uh, they 
uh, were ministering and Paul was bitten by a snake. He pulls the snake off, throws it in the fire. They all expect him to die from the venom. He doesn't die. He just keeps on ministering. The Lord spares him from that. And so they begin to think of, as, of Paul as a god come down to earth in the form of a man. They start to call uh, Barnabas Zeus, and they start to call Paul Hermes, and they start to gather up materials to make a sacrifice and an offering to Paul and to Barnabas. And you can imagine how they responded to this. They were beside themselves. They, they shouted out, this is not to be. We are just men like you are. Paul and Barnabas recognized that that was the wrong kind of recognition and esteem. They didn't want that kind of exaltation. They were there that Christ might be exalted in their work. So who are we to give honor to? Who are we to submit to? We're to submit to, the scripture tells us here in 1 Corinthians 16, to every, I mean, it says indiscriminately, to everyone, every fellow worker who labors for the gospel of Christ. And this points back, I believe, to the section in 1 Corinthians where we spoke about the spiritual gifts in chapter 12, where we're not to look at any of the spiritual gifts as superstar gifts while we discount other gifts as being menial or common or not worthy of gratefulness. Rather, every fellow worker is to be treated with dignity and respect and to be appreciated in the house of God. Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, because of their dedication and willingness to put themselves aside for the benefit of others, bring joy to Paul and to those who are blessed by their support and effort. Paul rejoiced, in fact, at their coming. He was grateful for them. He was grateful for the support and the kindness that they showed to him and to be able to labor alongside other people who also had such a great affection and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone who is called by the name of Christ knows that well because if it wasn't for the willingness of our Savior to put his own safety, if it wasn't for the willingness of Jesus Christ to condescend and to take on flesh and to fulfill the law that we all failed to keep, if it wasn't for his willingness to suffer and to experience shame and desertion from those closest to him, if he wasn't willing to labor for the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, then we wouldn't be saved today. So as we conclude the sermon portion of our uh, morning, let us keep in mind that the greatest worker of all, of course, is, is not John MacArthur. It's not the Apostle Paul. It's not your favorite preacher on the radio. It's Jesus Christ, that he has done the work. And now in a response to that amazing transformational power that he has showed in our lives, we get to work alongside him. And we should be grateful for that opportunity and grateful for those who take that opportunity as well. Let's pray and then we're going to transition to our, our table this morning. God, we thank you for your grace and ask that you would give us an inclination to want to be active in your church. It is so easy to make up excuses as to why there are a million other things that get our attention and our time and our energy and our focus and in the meanwhile, your bride, the, the body of Christ, the church, is left in neglect. So I pray, Lord God, that we as believers would be thankful for what you have done for us, recognizing that you get all the credit and the glory for it, and then let us turn and want to, because of our gratitude, worship you through service, applying our gifts to the benefit of the saints in the church, thankfully and, and with a devoted heart, continuing on in the work even when it gets hard, Lord God. We praise you for the example of these men. And we pray, Lord God, that as we serve one another, that would be a tremendous channel by which our love for the brothers and sisters might be expressed. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.